This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. Well, it's Groundhog Day again. Yes, we're back in lockdown here in Melbourne, uh, so we're kicking it like it's 2020, uh, broadcasting <laughs> to you from the comfort of our own homes uh, via the magic of <laughs> Zoom, uh, leaving our poor panellist Carl in the studio to fend for himself. Uh, please send cookies. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and rejoining me after their critically acclaimed award-winning appearance on the mu- on the show a month ago, where did that time go, <laughs> is the co-head programmer of the Melbourne International Film Festival, Kate Fitzpatrick. Hey, Paul. <laughs> hey, hey. And writer, critic, man about town, Stephen A. Russell. I love that I'm literally underneath a dinner right now. But I- <laughs> <laughs> we love that too. Under the cover of darkness. This is very, very weird. Um, maybe this is why Stephen's hiding under a doona. Um, we'll be tracking, uh, we'll be tackling a trio of new releases. First, we'll try not to make a peep. Bit hard on the radio, so we're all doomed. As the sound-sensitive beasties have another crack at murdering Emily Blunt in John Krasinski's follow-up to his 2018 hit, A Quiet Place, Part 2. Then we'll sit and have a yarn with one of Australia's greatest living actors, national treasure David Golpalil, in Molly Reynolds's documentary, My Name is Golpalil. And finally, we'll dodge punches, bullets, katanas, and severed heads as Takashi McKay brings us his patented band of cra- uh, brand of crazy with his latest film. Well, no, he's made one, one film, two TV series, and a short with a feature to come since First Love. Also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now it's time for the Primal Screen News Bulletin for the week. The St Kilda Film Festival, one of Australia's top-tier short film festivals, wound up its latest edition over the weekend, handing out its annual awards. Best film went to the drama Lost Boy, directed by Peter Skinner, while Best Youth Short Film was won by Emmanuel Matana for the queer love story The Odyssey. Best Director was won by Gabriel Morrison for Joy. The Craft Award went to Anthony Webb's sci-fi epic Carmentis, which also won Best Actor for Ben Mortley and Best Sound Pre-Production, uh, Post-Production. Sound Pre-Production <laughs> would be very weird. Uh, best Documentary was won by Jaina Khalifa and Amelia Paxman's Lost Contact. Best animation went to Jin Lee's The Winter and Best Achievement in Indigenous Filmmaking to John Bell's The Mugai, which screened at MIFF last year. And Best Young Actor was won by Catherine Lillian for the post-apocalyptic drama Dry Fire. Congratulations to all the winners. The Cannes Film Festival is resolving to go ahead this year with its 74th edition with a Palm Door jury headed by Spike Lee is getting a do-over after being named jury president for last year's festival, which was, of course, cancelled. And they've started naming films. After Leos Carax's Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard starring musical Annette was named as the opening night film, Wes Anderson's eagerly awaited all-star concoction The French Dispatch, which was also meant to unveil at last year's festival, has joined the official competition lineup, 
as has perennial enfant terrible Paul Verhoeven's new religious drama, Benedetta. The full lineup of films competing for the Palme d'Or will be released on Thursday, July 3rd. Now, please join us, uh, well, in cinemas in a few days, maybe a week, who knows, for our first film of the week. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, baby. Mom? That sounds relaxing. A (laughs) Quiet Place Part 2 is the fourth feature film directed by John Krasinski. Following the events at home, the Abbott family, led by Mother Evelyn, eldest daughter Regan and son Marcus, um, played by uh, Emily Blunt, Millicent uh, Simmons and Noah Jupe, now face the terrors of the outside world. Forced to venture into the unknown, they realise that the creatures that hunt by sound are not the only threats that lurk beyond the sand path as they run across survivors played by Killian Murphy and Jaiman Hunsu, among others. Kate, I didn't get to see this. I booked a ticket last Thursday night before lockdown, but Palace Pentridge closed up early before I got there. Still waiting on that refund, by the way. So I'll <laughs> remain appropriately quiet about this one. Um, was this an ex- effective extension of the Quiet Place story and world, or should it have been neither heard nor seen? Um, I I really enjoyed uh, the first Quiet Place. Um, I mean, I, I was highly anticipated and it, it was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed this one as well. Um, I think it... It starts really strongly. The first half is definitely much stronger. Um, I really enjoy getting the backstory of how how these creatures come to Earth. Um, it's got to, it's really creates a great scene. Um, the second half probably leans a bit too more heavily on just the um, traditional jump scare, but I mean, you know, not opposed to those either. Um, I think it's definitely set up for another um, instalment and I'd be really interested to see where they take it. Um, for me, there's a, there's a part in the, in the, in the finale of it where um, the young uh, deaf daughter, Millicent Simmons, she's kind of comes out of uh this place they've been in hiding and she's walking towards one of these creatures. And I had this kind of moment where I thought, and maybe she's going to try and reason with it. And there's going to be, I don't know if if either of you saw Love and Monsters, but there's a really fantastic uh, scene in there with this, uh, one of the monsters where there is this kind of connection between the human and, and the monster. And I was kind of hoping that they would go for that in this, which um, they sadly didn't, but I don't know. I'm hoping somewhere maybe in the third instalment there'll be some kind of explanation as to I mean what why did they come? What what are they here for? Because at this point they're just these mindless killing machines. So but yeah. And and how do you milk a franchise out of that? You know what I mean? Like it's like it, it's over and over and over again, you know? Exactly. I mean it, it at least in my opinion, I don't know about you, Stephen, but it finished and I thought, well, they're clearly they clearly have in mind to, to to have another one of these made. Absolutely, and look, I have to I have to agree. First off, I'm just going to say that I thought that the start was really 
incredibly well done, Paul. I think you'll appreciate it. I mean, one of the things I loved about, and, and look, you know, beforehand we didn't really know where the monsters were from, and there's certainly an element about that that is appealing. Yeah. It was nice to have them established as alien invaders with meteorites. And maybe, to be honest, I felt it was more a bit like Starship Troopers, you know, where they're kind of, where the, the insects all came down and these meteorites that also blew chunks out of the air while they were at it. And the, the stuff that I really loved, actually, and while it's a very dramatic opening, and, you know, we get to see John Krasinski again, where, you know, spoilers, if you didn't see the first one, you might be surprised he's around again. Anyway, he's back. But what I, what I really loved about the start was actually just the really quiet layering. So, for instance, he goes into the supermarket that becomes a real, you know, life or death situation in that first film. And you see certain things on the shelves that, that are used as props in the original outing. So I got a real thrill, all that kind of foreshadowing of what we've already seen. And, and then straight after the jump, you know, it kind of launches right back into the basement where Emily Blunt's been fighting for her family's life. You know, you can still see the bloody knife on the steps that was, I mean, the bloody nail, sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great bit. Mm. That was all great. The longer I've been away from this film, the less I like it, unfortunately. I, I agree with Kate. It's all, it's all, it's really, you know, it's going to get the punters in, which we all desperately need right now. It's, you know, it's it's full of action. It's exciting. You do jump. I squealed multiple times. Where I think it really ultimately kind of disappointed me the longer I've thought about it is that it doesn't really do anything new. So while it's true that we expand beyond the farmstead and we see a couple of different different sort of communities beyond you know the valley that we we have in the first film neither of them is particularly interesting neither of them's particularly well developed there aren't Killian Murphy's a bit of a blah addition I love him as an actor but his character's pretty boring uh the other community there's a there's a there's a real kind of like Mad Max style world gone wild bit that is mm. all laughably done within <laughs> Um, well, like, yeah, I, hmm. I was going to say world gone wild very quietly. <laughs> well, okay, what did you think about that? Did well, you... I mean, I thought that was that that bit. I, I thought was kind of ridiculous, but I also thought even the the people on the other island. I just thought that was so strange. It's like really, you found a safe place, and you're just going to sit around and barbecue, and that's basically your life now. Like it seemed like such a. I don't understand that. No, okay. I just, I've just. The more I think about it, the more I think it was really weakly written. I, I don't mm. think they had much of an idea of where to go. And ultimately, the finale just devolves into the same but less tense because what made the first film so spectacular and it's not it's not unique by any stretch of the imagination in the horror canon, but it was a family against the monsters stuck in, the, you know, the, what should be the comfort of their own home. And that tight setting is what made the first film. And unfortunately, when you've got, as you said, Kate, brainless monsters, mm. 
expanding the world in a way that doesn't really give us a lot to work with just didn't feel that interesting. Yeah, and I think that's what I was disappointed that there's not more given to those monsters and if they do make a third film, I hope that there is more of that to explore where it's just... If it's just the default, let's let's get our gun and kill these things, I find that kind of very limiting. And the thing is, Kate, it doesn't even do like I, I am a massive stan for aliens, right? I am I am that boy that will risk all credibility and argue that as much as I love them, it's a superior film to the original. Oh, I agree. And oh, what? Oh my yeah. goodness, been you. <laughs> I thought that like me. I, Aliens is a perfect movie. Alien is almost perfect, but uh, in true Ridley Scott fashion, is about fifteen minutes too long. And look, so the thing that I love about it is you don't even you don't need to go more cerebral. You can just go bigger. You know, mm. Alien mm. works by maximizing but, the. the but it's also a different angle, isn't it? Like the whole thing is like you know the first one's a slasher film, they're trapped on the ship. The second one is like this is the offense that's been sent in to clear this planet, do this thing, and that's the, and that's the thing. If you expand it to this is we've we've sort of learned how to beat these creatures, and or you know this is our attempt or whatever, or a prequel or something. But if it's just the same thing but in a different place, it and it just it seems repetitive. Do they do the kind of is this sort of like a twenty eight days later sort of? the humans are worse than the aliens sort of scenario, like they go to a camp full of terrible people? No, the camp camp is just people that have got away, but uh, Stephen's referring to these kind of weird, the the Mad Max people are like these weird people living down by the docks Mm. who somehow have, I don't know, lost their minds and... (laughs) I've been around Docklands, I've seen that happen. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it can it can do that to people. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, they've, gone, they've got. I don't. It's, they've kind of gone a bit culty, but it's honestly they don't because you can't really have much dialogue in this scene. And you're right, Kate. You know what? I didn't even think about that. There is literally zero explanation as to how they've survived out in the open. None at all. I mean, other than perhaps because they're near the water, which the first film, you know, kind of established running water could confuse them. And then from that point on, the, the existence of this entire series is utterly ludicrous, unless people just hang out constantly by waterfalls, basically. <laughs> Lots of water cooler chat happening in the quiet place universe. Yeah, yeah. good for them. <laughs> <laughs> so A Quiet Place Part 2 is now screening, at, oh, well, once cinemas reopen, a Quiet Place Part 2 will be screening at most major and independent cinemas. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen with Kate Fitzpatrick, Stephen A. Russell, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. My spirit will return back to my country. I will miss my children. And I think of them and I love them. My Name is Gobelil is the third feature documentary and fifth feature overall, directed by Molly Reynolds. Early in 2017, legendary Australian actor David Gobelil was diagnosed with lung cancer. His doctors estimated six months for him, but David, being David, was always likely to defy the odds, and he continues to do so uh, with this, probably his uh, last great work, that's according to the filmmakers, not myself, Um, My Name is Gobelil. 
For the first time, it's all him, in his story, in his words, taking us boldly on the journey that is his most extraordinary culture-clashing life. Stephen, uh, did this journey have you reappraising the life and work uh, and work of one of Australia's greatest artists? Look, I, I, I mean, I'm I'm super biased going in. You know, I think he's one. I think he is a mercurial force of cinematic whirlwind. You know, there he, he he's just been a magnetizing factor on our silver screens for 50 years now. I mean, you know, Walkabout was 1971, so we're literally at the 50-year space. And, you know, there there are many actors out there who in that time have racked up, you know, 200-plus or, you know, your Meryl Streeps or whatnot. But the thing that I find quite spectacular about David is that his hit rate within those 50 films is just astounding. Like, what, what? what's well, not? Yeah, it's fifty years. It's not fifty films. He's almost, and this is probably the only time this will ever be compared. He's almost Warren Beatty esque. He's only done twenty one films over fifty years. Really? I thought it was. I thought it was fifty titles. No, no, it was was thirty nine titles as an actor, and there's a bunch of stuff for TV. Only twenty one movies, and like half of those are great. And you read through them, and it's it reads like a living history. Yeah. Of post World War II Australian cinema, from Walkabout to um, Goldstone and the Stormboy remake. You know that's and- like how how you, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the Australian New Wave is probably a rich, you know, richest period. And he he has seamlessly straddled that period until now. And it's not just you know, it's not the thing that's quite amazing is it's not just you know art house films like uh, Ten Canoes. You know he's also been at the figurehead of massive global populist hits. like he's Cross- the, I believe he's the only actor who's been in the two biggest box office hits in Australian history. Australia. Crocodile Dundee in Australia. And, you know, and, and so there's this ability for him to speak language and to demonstrate his incredible dancing ability, singing ability. You know, Nicholas Rogue picked him literally. Mm out of the bush because he just saw you know like it, it, it was like seeing electricity like lightning caught in a bottle you know he he could see then and there where we'd be now and I, ca- I can't speak I think Molly Reynolds has done a beautiful job particularly it's so easy particularly with Australian documentaries that don't always have huge budgets to go down the very basic top and heads template and I think there is an incredible honour and dignity and strength in allowing David to essentially narrate the end of his life mm. on his own terms. What did you think, Kate? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I love I love the approach that she's taken. Um, it's kind of this extension of her film from 2015, another country, which is more of like a, I guess, a, a film essay, but in both it, he's really front and centre of telling his own story. And I think that that's a, a huge call to make because he's the only one who can really tell it in that magnetic style that he has too. He so instantly draws you in. He's got such an incredible face. He's got an incredible voice. He's got this incredible charisma that you you just 
you're captivated for the time that you spend with him and to watch him reflect on his life and also his impending death it's it's very sobering stuff to watch I found like it's really um I mean he's I don't want to sound hyperbolic but he's really a national treasure this man and I think these things, the the way that these his story has been documented, it's it's a huge, huge asset for us as a country to have. Yeah, I I, I don't throw words. I don't like to throw words around like that, like you know, national treasure, unless I'm doing it ironically. But this is one <laughs> of the few times that you you can say it and mean it. He yeah. Um, as you know, as if his bona fides as an actor, dancer, artist and storyteller needed any proving at all, the evidence presented in this film just further underlines what a phenomenally gifted artist and genuine icon. Again, icon is a word I don't often use seriously, but mm. here we can, um, this past half century. Like he's so recognisable. Like he's, he's, and he's, he's, he's incredibly famous. Like we're talking about that incredible resume. Um and like you, you know, he covers everything. He covers he covers the the you know the the Australian New Wave with films like uh, Walkabout and Storm Boy, but also Ozploitation with Mad Dog Morgan and The Last Wave, which is sort mm-hmm. of a, a Ozploitation New Wave kind of crossover. Um, he's yeah, he's in literally the film that defined Australia for half the world in Crocodile Dundee. He's in um, yeah, like. It's just this constant checkpointing of these incredible, and then of course Charlie's country, and I think the way the the scenes presented here make a serious case for him being one of the greatest, like one of the five tenant most greatest actors this country's ever produced. Yeah, like like just there's stuff he can do, like he could do drama, comedy, pathos, subtlety, histrionics. He can do all of it, but there's and often it's just with that a mere flick of those eyes, that a remarkably expressive face. Like you see scenes in rabbit proof fence and the tracker where he's just so beautifully subtle. Um, and then you see him in things like the last wave and storm boy. And it's, he's like a movie star. Mm. Like he's, he's handsome and he's charismatic and he's got, and it's like, it, he's the whole package. And it's like, he's never been bad on screen like he's always truthful and he's always and whether it's that untrained thing but no there's something else there's some there's like you were saying before Stephen. there's something innate and gifted about him and 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 just seeming to just know how to act for screen is oh and well i feel like that's part of the message he's saying i mean there's part Mm. of i don't want to do down his skill because he absolutely is obviously you know he has he has a craft. Mm, absolutely. A big part of that is his natural magnetism and, and his ability to play on that. I mean, honestly, yeah. like, you know, we're, we're having this debate about whether we are going over the top, but I think one of the most beautiful things about the documentary is actually the very opening minutes. And so what, what, what we see, you know, even just jumping back to A Quiet Place Part 2, bizarrely, you know, Molly films him in some of the locations that we have witnessed him in in these many films. You know, he, he, we kind of see him almost step back in through time. But the film opens with him walking on a dusty road, following an emu gently padding along. And then, is it a, an emu or is it a cassowary? I was wondering about that. 
Scary birds I would not go anywhere near. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't. It's above my pay grade. Like, it's nothing. You get that size, I'm not having a bar of it. Goodbye. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thanks for ruining my beautiful moment here, Kate. But anyway. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, fired. I'm never going to come back again. <laughs> what really amazed me is that, you know, so we're watching this beautiful moment of him kind of following on the bird. And then he stops and he turns around and he walks back the way he came. And that goddamn bird, whatever it is, other than scary, <laughs> and turns around and follows him. Mm. I cannot think of a better visual representation of the way we've all stopped and turned and followed him for the last 50 years. Mm. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah, I, I, I really, yeah, I, I, I think the film works best when it's in this insightful, often poignant dialogue between footage of Goldblum as a younger man and him today. Like, there's, there's a lot of scenes early on where they're just, they're almost talking to each other. It's almost this call and response, and I thought that was really beautiful. But for uh, and uh, and just watching him and so magnetic, and he has lived the most extraordinary life. Like Bob Marley gave him his first joint. Oh, I know what an like, incredible what story. The actual hell. <laughs> like he's what? met Queen Elizabeth. He ate dinner. Like he made them all eat with it. Like they all started eating with their hands at the table. Like, That's a fantastic. Did either of I've never saw that um, that live performance. Did either of you ever see that? Because that that particular segment, it was just so brilliantly funny. And I just, I had that, you know, kind no, no, of regret going, oh, damn, I wish I'd got to see that. It looked incredible. Again, you know, it's like it's not easy to make theatre come alive on mm. cinema screen. And even he's still, you know, he's performing through two frames. Through two, He's performing to the people, the audience watching him on stage, but that is still carrying through that second screen that we've put on it. And... I, honestly, Kate, I just wanted to step in the TARDIS and go back and see that show. Yeah, mm, yeah, same. I wonder if it was something it only showed in Sydney, like whether it travelled Australia, whether they just did it in Sydney. I'm not sure, but yeah, very, very sad. I miss that because yeah, it's just like this. Like he keeps coming out with these anecdotes and these, um, and they don't. And and the cool thing is they don't glo- they don't sand off the rough edges either. Like. You know, there's there's footage of him. He's you know he can have a temper at times. He can be mm. you know he's obviously had some issues in the past with 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 alcohol and marijuana and with um, ex wives and so forth. And it you know puts that out there sort of late in the film, but but you know kind of warts and all. I guess if I have any issue with the film for me, I and I guess I I wasn't really aware before watching this that it was conceived when it appeared he only had six months to live and the original title of the film was The Life and Death of David Goldblum. It becomes, for me, particularly in the second half, it starts to become increasingly morbid. It was like it, it it becomes this elegy for someone who's still alive. Uh, with There's frequent scenes of Goldblum in hospital, hooked up to drips, pouring over the mistakes of his life, longing to return to country and family but stuck in Adelaide for medical reasons. And while all of this is is true and certainly worth addressing and mentioning and 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 the fact that it does refreshingly address the notion of death head-on rather than shying away from it i really like that as well mm. it does feel more and more dominant in the second half which we, you know we're just seeing a lot of this man frail and in hospital and it almost feels 
like we're, it's perhaps drawing focus away from this extraordinary life and soul we're supposed to be celebrating and into the kind of just sort of watch, watching an old man get sick and die. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. I just felt it, it started to feel a bit like oh, maybe I don't feel like I should be here, you know. It feels like something private. Yeah, I, th- I guess that, I think that's a fair that's a fair thing of her comment to make too. And I guess that also is almost inevitable because mm. that that's what the film is um, is about in the end. I, th- I think I've, I started to feel that sense of urgency on his part. It kind of reminded me of that bit in Charlie's Country where he says to his friend, "Like, but you know, if they take you to Darwin, then you won't die." On, on your country, like you need to, you'll be mm. too far away. And I started to feel like that for him. Um, yeah. And so I guess, yeah, it's, I think that's a fair comment to make about it feeling morbid, but it's almost like you can't really get away from that too. Yeah, I, I, I kind of really found that part of what this incredibly generous gift that he has allowed us into these moments. You know, I, I, I know what you're saying, and that can be such a fine line about, mm. you know, where 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 the line of, um, yeah, whether whether that's okay or not. For me, I did feel that he it was very purposefully him narrating his life and his death. I felt that that was. Mm of what he was inviting us in to. Um, I'm not going to put words in anyone's mouth, but, yeah. you know. Well, he Absolutely. literally says that, yeah. So this is my story. I'm telling it, yeah. And, um, yeah, going back to be a fish again, which I just loved that. Mm. Um, if, if this is the final film, then, my goodness, what riches he's given us. But I, 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 I wish I could double them. I really do. I really, really do. I wish we could have more. Mm. Beautifully said. Uh, so once cinemas reopen, My Name is Gulp Lil uh, will be screening at Cinema Nova, the classic Lido and Cameo cinemas. Uh, and also please use this opportunity to go out and check as many. There's not that many films, people, 21 in total. Um, you could, you can maybe skip. There's a, yeah, there's a later one yeah. that I don't know about. But <laughs> Can you say of some of them are streaming as well? Some of them are, are yeah, there's a on heap. streaming. Um, Walkabout is on Stan. Um, what was the other one I suggested watching? I can't can't remember off the top of my head. Um, I think Goldstone is on Stan. Yeah, they're, they're, heaps of them are streaming. There's so many um, classics. And like, like I said, if you watch his films, it takes you through the history of post-war Australian cinema. You, you cover every period. Um, yeah, and I quite, I really like, that he he said it uh, multiple times about all in, through all of his performances he's had his integrity like he's representing his he's bringing his culture to screen which I think is you know obviously very important and to he, him you feel like he's done that since day one haven't you mm. like there's been other actors I think that have done that as well like I like I think you know you, you could say that about Gary Foley you could say that about Tommy Lewis but not as constant and as iconic like he like he's in the right stuff for. Christ's sake. Yes. Like, you know, like, it's one of the greatest American films of the 80s. Mm. Like, you know, and it's just like, again, and always represents himself with with dignity, even when playing comedy, you know, and and he's always just, and it, that you'd get the feeling that he's been, again, Beatty-esque, very picky with what he does. Like, he's very choosy <laughs> about the projects, you know. <laughs> um, uh, 
Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm the first person to ever compare the careers of David Goppel and Warren Beatty, but I'll take that. Look, and I'm on board with that too. I, I'm enjoying that comparison, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 an incredible tribute to a, to um, to a truly um, truly iconic artist. Uh, so yes, so you can catch my name is Gopalil in cinemas once they reopen. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. One hundred two point seven. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Stephen A. Russell, Kate Fitzpatrick, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Buck, 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 Now, listeners, before you send this mail, he was saying back, 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 back in Japanese. It wasn't the other word. I just want to tell you this. Um, Go look it up on the internet. It has subtitles. First Love is the good Lord 89th feature film for cinema or video directed by Takashi Miike, according to IMDb. A... Actually, 88th, I think. A young, naive boxer played by uh, Masataka Kubota and a cool girl beset by visions played by Nao uh, Omori get caught up in a drug smuggling scheme over the course of one night in Tokyo, which is a very short and polite way of describing the nuttiness on display here. Kate, were you able to keep your head, wink, wink, <laughs> while watching this la- latest slice of Mickey Madness? I, I I had an interview with someone that said it was his hundred and third feature film. Yeah, see, this but... is the thing. When this is because there was all this publicity when Blade of the Immortal came out, and I remember Miff even had this in their thing. It was his hundredth mm. film, and I can't see anything that corroborates that. Um, IMDb have his like total credits at one hundred and ten, and oh. that includes episodes of television and like short films, and so I don't know where they're getting this figure from. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, look, I, I had a really great time with this. It is indeed nutty as all hell. Um, uh, but I was I was really on board. It's like it's super violent, um, but it it's also really funny, um, which I really, you know, humour and violence, that's like my favourite combination on screen. I really <laughs> enjoyed that. Um, I love that. I, th- I think it's kind of very easy to describe this film as comic book violence. So I love that he's kind of really takes that and at one point actually has it is <laughs> a cartoon basically as the car literally flies becomes the air. a cartoon. Yeah, I, I really love that little. He seems to be having such a great time with it all. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not a huge Takashi Miki fan. Like, I'm not to say that I'm not a fan of his. I just I haven't seen all, all 88 features, <laughs> many of them. But, yeah, I, I, I really had a great time with this. I thought it was a lot of fun. It's maybe slightly a bit too long, but I, I was really on board for, for most of it. Um, kind of really enjoy all the um the crazy women in it as well, <laughs> like the um, the 
girlfriend of the of the uh, drug dealer that's killed. I think she's really like fantastically nuts. Um, she, I think she's that's her screaming in that clip that you just played, mm-hmm. um, and she does those guttural screams particularly well. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, she's she's proper crazy. And uh, just to one of your points there, Kate, um, the reason I sort of picked this to review this week is because it's shocking. It's one of the few, it's a rare Mikkei film that's screening here outside of film festivals. Mm. I mean, this did screen at MIF a couple of years ago. Um, yes. And it was one of two films, I think, from Mikkei that screened that year. And <laughs> it, given that he makes two to five films every year, um, those, you know, those 88 feature films have been since, what, 1990 or something? Like, it's insane. I know. It's in, he's just indefatigable, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the man just keeps going. And that's um, and that's the thing. Like, so few of them screen here that I thought, well, now that we've got it, we're, there's a chance to capture one in the wild. We should, we should do it. Um, Stephen. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. What were you uh, say? Sorry. The, the only other thing I was going to say, I really enjoy the fact that quite perversely this was released in the uk on valentine's day last year which i had such a great thought of thinking of a couple going into a cinema going what will we see tonight honey oh first love that sounds delightful um (laughs) and then and then getting this that would be really really great because i mean i guess there's kind of a sweet love story that happens in amongst all the violence which is kind of cute like the boxer and the um the poor woman who's you know turning tricks because of a dad a debt that her dad owed um it's kind of a really sweet story at the center of it all Stephen what were your uh what were your thoughts I mean where to even start other than <laughs> As a, I thought maybe, maybe I'll just you know take that 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 sort of uh, link that Kate made to the um, the the female drug dealer. I mean, there's if, if there's a perfect sort of explanation or encapsulation of of the the way this film just starts wild and then takes <laughs> it beyond all reasonable expectation is the moment where they blow up her apartment and she just without even really blinking, just full-on smashes herself through the window to get... <laughs> and I just, honestly, I think that was the moment I went, yes! I love it! <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is, right, it kind of... It's so all over the place, gloriously so, that it's kind of, as Kate says, you know, there's a love story in there. It's encompassing comedy. It's got extreme violence. Yes, played comically, but still intense. Mm. But, you know, it, it opens as a kind of, a bit like Creed, a bit like Rocky. You know, it's got... One of my favourite things on screen is a really well shot boxing match, and mm. you're right in there with the sweat, with the the, the you know the bone crunching ricochets, and and you're like, this is amazing. I think this is going to be a film, obviously about a young boxer, mm. and apropos of nothing, <laughs> it cuts to a severed head. <laughs> outside and from you're on the back the back heel the entire film and i love it it's changing genre every time you blink and it's <laughs> magnificent I, I was 
utterly enthralled from the get-go here. And it looks beautiful, and it sounds like the soundtrack is so... It's killer. It's a killer. Yeah. I like that, and I love the, like, there's such differing kinds of music on the soundtrack too. Like, it starts with that didgeridoo music when he's playing, like, when he's boxing, and then there's that kind of weird acidy jazz, crazy... <laughs> um, it's the track we just played. It was, like, the yeah. opening thing, which is, like, didgeridoo into acid jazz into kind of raw, like, you know, it's, it's and rock and yeah, roll. Yeah, I agree. It looks amazing. Like, there's that fantastic shot where the there's that cavalcade of um, cop cars that are chasing the Yakuza guy over the bridge, and the lighting of it is just perfect. It's su- such a beautiful-looking shot. I can't remember the last time I saw so many good night shots in a film. Mm. Glorious. You know, every ochre amber of the night is on fire in this film. It's just stunning. Mm. I it, Yeah, I, I, I've seen a few McKay's over the, like probably about nine or ten over the years. And I, I do come to expect a certain degree of madness from him. And this is kind of exactly the kind of madness I was after. Um, but it also means in true McKay fashion, the story is slapdash. It's, it does careen from one ridiculous and or silly and or ultra cool, uh, hyper cool uh, moments. The next, the characters are all sketches with ultra violent quirks. Like all of them seem to have something really, really violent that they do. Um, it's, but thankfully, it's refreshingly shorter than his because often his films are about two and a quarter hours of this. But this is about 108. Um, although it still does meander in the middle, I felt. I, I did find myself, sometimes if if I get a little too much crazy without any ballast, I start to kind of tune out a bit. Mm. Um, and, you know, it meanders with sound and fury. Don't get me wrong. There is always something happening. Uh, but often it's just stuff happening. Um, but everything comes together in the last act that really charges home with some wonderfully berserk, darkly funny fight scenes. Um, you know, you've got a one-armed swordsman. You've got you've got a, a, an ethical female assassin. You've got I, my favorite was the cop who just kept like couldn't help himself but leave behind this trail of bodies and and then even just started like mashing cocaine into his wounds taking scarface one step further yeah i feel i feel like he was almost he's almost like you paul like you're kind of like i forget all this crazy without much going on then i kind of tune out he's got this kind of like Oh God! How many more do I have to kill today? Yeah. It's this great comic. Yeah, it's like come on, he just wants to punch the clock and be done. Yeah, it's like really, I got to kill this guy now too. Yes. So <laughs> I do. I do love though that probably the most brutal murder is just like there's something glorious about the fact that he you know, kind of uses a car for the most brutal murder. Oh, made me go the... Yeah, absolutely. And you know it's coming. You just think, don't do it, don't do it. I'm like, God. Which is the person. See, it's the classic horror fake out that we never... We don't actually see it, but it's also the one that scars us the most. Yes, Exactly. And and yeah, and it, to me, this feels like you know, this feels like to Mickey's riff on something like True Romance. You know, it's that sort of two kids in messed up situations, kind of get into you know, fall. They start, they meet, they start to connect, 
but just before they get the chance to stop and fall in love, they get caught up in this insanity of corrupt cops, Yakuza assassins, and just plain old psychos out for vengeance (laughs) and drug dealers. And And all the while dealing, like her dealing with her past trauma when she's hallucinating an abusive father at every turn. Yeah, who's just dressed in underpants and just constantly... (laughs) You know, as much as they are, there's obviously abundant tropes and there's obviously, you know, character types. And yet, somehow, none of them quite fall easily into those boxes. Like, I felt Mm. like still, as surface as it is, was still playing really unexpected things. Like, for instance, you know, Kate kind of touched on the fact that all the women characters have quite a bit of agency despite... The you know the, despite those tragic pasts that they're kind of saddled with, or you know despite being partners, they 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 kind of they really do make a huge impact on the film. The 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 constant side switching of who's who's who and what I I just really enjoyed. I felt like it's a film that gleefully has you never quite getting your feet catching your feet at any mm. moment. <laughs> It's, it's the thing. I don't know. I don't know if there was that much love in this film, but lots of violence, <laughs> stupidity, and 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 more than a little style. I I, I think, uh, in short, uh, this is McKay B McKay. Um, <laughs> it's, it's false advertising. I absolutely hope that there was people in Britain going, "What the hell are we doing?" I know. It's so I, great. I would love. You know, they do those vox pops after people walk out of film. Sometimes I hope someone's done that for the <laughs> Valentine's Day release of First Love in the UK. Like that's just kind of beautiful perversion from whoever released it there. Punk <laughs> move. <laughs> I, see, I can see there's certain distributors in the UK that I feel like would totally um, that you know handle cult material that I could totally see counter programming with that. Like yeah, First Love. We'll get we'll get the McKay heads, but we'll also get some unsuspecting punters as well, seeing the title and you know, <laughs> hoping for a lovely little rom com. And I was thinking, like, what what is the first love in this film? Is it is it her childhood friend? Is it yeah? Is it drugs? Is I think, it- <laughs> I, th- I think it's her with the childhood friend and him in general. Like, I, I think it's his first love. You hadn't really like part of the story is that he's not really lived a life. I, I, I thought it was. He'd never been with a girl before. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that was that was the impression I got, that he was kind of new to all this and, you know, she was um, obsessing over the, the, <laughs> the man that punched her dad. It's such a bizarre. <laughs> but, you know, it's McKay. It's, you know, bizarre as bizarre part of the territory. Have you guys seen, so you said you've only seen a handful of McKay's, Kate. Yeah, I mean, I think I've only seen Audition. Yeah, right. Mm, what about so, you, Stephen? I'm, I'm in a similar boat of what I have seen has, has purely been, you know, the two or three that I've seen via myth. That So this was a real joy for me and it actually made me think that this is a, a, a blind spot. I don't know where I'd even start. In it. Yeah. And that's the thing. You could start anywhere. It's always like, that's the thing. There's always a degree of madness. Like there was a film that Myth screened about five years ago called Yakuza Apocalypse, which Mm. was very famous for a very memeable scene where a guy dressed as like a big green kind of 
mon- in, a, in a sort of a felt green monster costume, like a big, you know, toy lizard type thing, just kicks the absolute snot out of about five people doing <laughs> flying karate kicks and everything else. Um, and that is like this, that's sort of in this territory, like it's just pure madness. But then there's beautiful stuff like, uh, he he did a remake of Harakiri, Makashi, Makashi, Makara, uh, Masaki Kobayashi's um, Harakiri, which is really terrific and a completely worthy remake. Um, there's 13 Assassins, of course. Um, so he's all over the map. Like he's done sort of very straight sort of, you know, samurai pictures and and crime Yakuza films. You know, there's the uh, the outrage movies with Kateshi, uh, um, Takeshi Kitano. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, he's just he moves through so many subgenres of Japanese cinema. I mean, you know, you make a hundred films in thirty years, you're going to hit a few more than once. But, and that's yeah. it. It's a it's a big thing to take on to go. Wow, I'd really like to explore Ufra. <laughs> it's like, well, you're going to be yeah. It's going to take you a long time to get through all of that. Yeah, yeah. Pick a you know, pick a handful and see how you go from there. Um, but you know, you see audition or Gozu or something. Don't be surprised if you walk away scarred. Oh yes, yes. When Sana, I can't hear that without shivering. When cinemas reopen, First Love will be screening exclusively at Cinema Nova. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. We checked out A Quiet Place Part 2, My Name is Gulpalil, and First Love, which will all be screening in cinemas once they reopen. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Primal Screen page on rrr.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Next week, I will be joined by superstars Lee Gambon and Eloise Ross as we celebrate three films turning 80 this year. What will the films be from 1941? Uh, check out our social media channels later this week. Clue, none of them are Citizen Kane. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast. Killer Carl Chapman for panelling the show and providing producing assistance. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 